0: Well, now we're going to read from God's Word uh, this evening. We're reading from Genesis, starting in chapter seven, verse twenty-three, to give us a little bit of context, and then uh, through chapter eight, verse twenty. Genesis seven twenty-three through eight verse twenty. So he, God, destroyed all living things which were. On the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove. To see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her, and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, And looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we saw God destroy the entire world. He drowned it under worldwide water, water that was miles deep. The world became an ocean planet. And the description that we're given, it's, it's historic. It's not a myth. The text supplies all of these specific numbers, dates, durations, depths. And this week, we see the reversal of all that we see God undo the flood. The text supplies even more specific numbers for dates and durations and information about the depths. And there's there's something of a beautiful symmetry when you take the text from last week and the text from this week. The undoing of the flood, as you look at the text, it's actually a mirror reflection of the building of the flood. One example, chapter seven, we've got seven days of final warning and then 40 days of rain. And well, the reflection of that is, is here. Chapter 8, verse 6, there are there are 40 days of the waters receding, and then seven days, not of warning, but of waiting for the dove. And as you read through the text, what, what is Noah doing? What is Noah doing? He's doing nothing. He's doing nothing but waiting. And for a full year, as, as you put together all the dates that are given for a full year from start to finish. Noah and the others, they wait in the floating box, this, this ark. Now, in, in the array of, of different Christian practices that the, Bible's, the Bible describes to us, in, in that whole span of things, you've got practices like, like listening for God, like hearing God, like loving God, like denying the flesh, well, this text tells us about one of the, the very frequently mentioned practices in scripture. This text tells us about waiting on God. Waiting on God. And, and that's something that's all through the Bible. Places like Psalm 62, verse 1. Truly, my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. As we look at tonight's text, we see three things. First of all, How to wait on God, how to wait on God. And then secondly, we see how not to wait on God. And then thirdly, why you can wait on God. So how to wait on God, how not to wait on God, and why you can wait on God. So let's start with how to wait on God. Verses one through five, it, it describes they describe months and months of this, this slow draining of the waters that are covering the earth. It's slow. It's gradual. The waters are going down after 150 days of going up. Now, the passage describes it kind of like the tide going out. How does the tide go out? It goes out slowly. It goes out over hours. This is the slow receding of a worldwide high tide. Verse 1. God made a wind, and, and the waters start to subside. Verse 3, the waters keep on receding, keep on receding. And then, then finally, verse 4, the ark has, has, has come down with the water level just enough that it's resting among mountains in this region called Ararat. And then verse 5 emphasizes, again, the waters decreased continually all the way till the 10th month. So how do you wait on God? How? How? Well, first of all, you recognize God sometimes puts you into a process. Sometimes God puts you into a process. Sometimes God is working through, you could almost imagine it like the growth of a tree. Sometimes he puts you into something that's like slow tree ring formation, not by instant lightning strike. Sometimes he does that. There are are these times where Like in in Genesis 1, on the third day of creation, that, that third day, God moves all of the water to make dry land. In creation, in a single day, God moved all of the water and divided the waters from the land. It was instant. Well, it would seem like, wouldn't he do that again here? But in Noah's situation, God will again, he will separate the waters from the dry land. But not in a day. He is going to use a process He's going to do it over the course of half of a year, step by step. Now why? Why does God sometimes do things in an instant and then he may do the same thing again, but it will be over a process, over a long time? We don't always know why. We don't know. We just acknowledge, as he does it, we acknowledge that his ways are wise. We just acknowledge that his ways are good, that they're trustworthy, that that his ways are higher than my ways. The division of, of water from, from the land, it's not the only place where, where God one time works in an instant, and, and at this other time, what we're reading about now, he, he's, he draws it out in a process over a long span of time. He does it in other places. Think, think about justification and sanctification. It's the same sort of thing. When you confess the Lord Jesus Christ and, and you believe on Christ, God instantly accomplishes your justification. He instantly justifies you when you confess with your mouth. It's in an instant that he permanently imputes to you the righteousness of Christ while imputing to Christ your sins. Justification is in an instant, but sanctification, which always follows, sanctification is a process. Sanctification is the the gradual transformation of your character into the image and the character of Christ as the spirit works out your salvation in you. The sanctification process begins at the moment of your justification and sanctification works out over your life in a process until the end of your life. You also see the contrast between an instant and and a process in things like Relationships. You see how the Bible describes this as well. Consider the difference between forgiveness and restoration in a relationship. The difference between forgiveness in a relationship and restoration. For instance, say that you've got a a, a husband who cheats on his wife, he's been unfaithful, but he confesses his sin, he asks for her forgiveness. And she may forgive him. Like, on the spot, she says, I forgive you. Sincerely, she forgives him. And forgiveness can be given instantly. But restoration can be a process. And in something like that, it has to be a process. It will take time for that relationship to be restored. Her trust, there's just no way her trust can be or even should be instantly fully restored. It will take time for her trust to be regained. And her own healing, that has to take time. You're not going to tell her, you've got to instantly be healed. He has hurt her. He's hurt her terribly. And, and if their love meant anything to her, it will take time to heal. And, and their intimacy, that will take time to be restored. The fact that that restoration in that example, requires a process, that does not mean that she failed to forgive him or that she did not forgive him. Forgiveness can be instantaneous, but restoration will be a process. And so waiting on God means that you recognize that God may work in an instant or God may draw it out. He may work in process, you might be in some tangled, knotty mess of some sort. Maybe it's a financial mess. Maybe it's a relationship mess. Maybe your mess took five years to create. Five years. And it may take just as long to untangle the situation as it did to build it up. It may even take longer. It may be shorter. Maybe you're the one who got yourself into this trouble. Maybe other people got you into this trouble. For instance, Noah was not to blame for being trapped in a box for a year. Noah is not the one who got himself into that situation. It wasn't Noah's fault. And maybe the actions and the misdeeds of other people in your life, in your situation, their bad choices, that's what's put you into whatever box you're you're in now. And you may still have to just wait on God until he brings down all the waters that have trapped you in that box. Waiting on God means that you recognize he put you into a process where you've got to wait for him to lower the waters, where you've got to wait for him to unwind the tangle. For instance, the the Israelites, they had to wait 400 years in Egypt for God to deliver them. The people of God had to wait 40 years in the wilderness before they could enter into the promise. The people of God had to endure 70 years of captivity and exile before God redeemed and returned them. They had to wait on God. And maybe that's where God has put you. How can you tell if God has put you into a time of waiting on him? How can you tell? Well, here's some questions you can ask about your own situation. First of all, in your situation, has God isolated you? Maybe he's isolated you from your, your contacts that you used to have. Maybe he's isolated you from opportunities and, and freedoms that you once had. Your abilities are just very limited in the situation where you're now. Noah's situation was clear. There was nothing he could do. He was, he was isolated. He was limited. He had to wait. So has God isolated you? Secondly, another way that you can tell if maybe God has put you into a time of waiting on him. Are, are you you're stuck, but you are following the last clear word that you received from the Lord. Are you, are you following the last clear word from God? But it's, just, it's left you almost in this stasis of waiting. The last recorded from God to Noah was come into the ark. That was in the previous chapter. And he was obeying that. So Noah obeyed that work and he was still obeying it. And there Noah parked for one year. The, the, it's interesting that the numbers that are given, the scriptures say, when you add it up, Noah was in there for a full lunar calendar. But he was also in there for a full solar calendar. It was, it was a full year and the days that are added on, it's enough to make a full solar year as well. And so, you may be there. God, by you obeying the last thing that God clearly told you to be doing. You may feel stuck, you may be waiting, and and you can spend that time scanning the word, scanning your Bible, following his instructions. And you just need to know that the Lord places a high value in being faithful, being faithful to do what he's told you to do and to keep on doing it while you wait on him. Doing what he said, even when you're alone, doing what he said, even when the seed has not yet started to germinate and you're coming out, you're looking and still the seed hasn't sprouted. And so you, you faithfully tend it, you weed it, you water it, but you're still waiting You're still being faithful. So has God isolated you? Are you following the last clear word for your situation from God? And then thirdly, has God clearly directed you to move or to act yet? Has God clearly directed you to move or to act yet? Verse 15, God finally speaks to Noah, telling Noah to get out of the ark. And so waiting on God means you wait on him until he speaks or you wait on him until he Opens the door, changes the situation, changes the hearts that are involved. God is the one that closed the door in, in Genesis 7. And God is the one who tells Noah to open the door to the ark in Genesis 8. And so, first, recognize that God is the one who puts you into this process sometimes. Now, secondly, waiting on God is this. This is how you wait on God. You also, you do the actions of waiting on God. You do the actions of waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is not passive. It's not passive where you just sit and you just kind of do nothing. You sit in an easy chair indefinitely. Waiting on the Lord is, is active. It's quite active. Here, here's, here's some of what waiting on the Lord looks like. It, it means this. It means you speak to God. More specific, specifically, you speak to God about waiting. You you tell him that you're waiting. You say, Lord, You know that I want to be married, but I'm waiting on you, Lord. I'm waiting for you to do something so that it could happen. Or, Lord, you know that I need this medical situation to be resolved. I need answers. I I need resolution. I'm waiting on you to work because I can't do anything more. I I can't make it happen. It, It means you say to him, Lord, these people are making my life miserable, and I've, I've addressed it as best I can. There's nothing more I can do. I am waiting on you to make a change, to intervene, to change minds. When you speak, you're waiting to God. Don't you see how that that's, that's an act of faith when you do that? It's an act of faith because you're speaking to him because you believe that God is. It's an act of faith because you're speaking to him because you believe that he wants to be personally engaged with you as you go through this, as you wait on him, as you wrestle with him. It's an act of faith because you're speaking, you're waiting, and it's showing that you believe that he's powerful and that he's good and that he could do something. And you speak your waiting to him because your heart is perplexed and you believe that he's the only place that you can go. The Psalms are filled, the book of Psalms are filled with prayers and songs that, that give you words to speak waiting on God. And and so you should use the psalms. Use the prayers and the songs in the psalms to to give voice to your waiting. For instance, Psalm 59, and there are tons of these. Psalm 59, it was written when, when the psalmist was suffering because of other people. He was suffering because of someone else talking trash about him, spreading misinformation about him. It was written when David lost his home He was isolated from his community. And it was because of his father-in-law who was making his life miserable and unstable. And, and, And David there in Psalm 59 speaks his waiting to God. Psalm 52, verse 9. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. I will come together with other believers, maybe for worship, and I will wait on your name, for it is good. Consider Psalm 130, verses five and six. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. So, waiting on God is anything but passive. It's active. You speak your waiting to God. Then also, Here's another way that it's active. You you also submit to God patiently. You're also submitting patiently to God. And that's that's active. That takes effort. It's, a, it's, an, it's an activity. It's a striving of your soul when you do that. God has put you into a box. He has shut you in a box. And weeks, months are just running down the clock. And you're wondering, like, is anything changing or... Why is it changing so slowly? Is it ever going to come to an end? But you wait. And patience, patience is waiting with peace. If you're waiting patiently, you're 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 waiting with peace. That's a, that's a good working definition of patience. It means you're waiting with peace, with you're you're waiting without agitation, without this churning and grinding in your heart. Consider the the prayer And the song that we have in Psalm 131, Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2. Here's a picture of of patience, of waiting with peace. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And so what he's saying here is, can you be a baby in the arms of the Lord? You're trapped, you're having to wait on him. Here's what waiting on the Lord looks like. Be a baby in the arms of the Lord. This is what he's praying. This is what he's saying. Lord, make me like a contented, trusting baby in your arms as I wait for you to resolve this. I'm not fussing. I'm not crying, you've calmed me, and I'm going to leave these things in your care, Father, as I wait on you. So those are some of the the ways it looks to wait on God. Very active. Now, we've looked at how to wait on God. Let's look at how not to wait on God. Verses 6 through 12. And in this part of the passage, Noah does a good job. He does well at waiting on God. And, And the way that he does well, it it shows us something about how not to wait on God. Kind of two mistakes that we can make in, in waiting on the Lord. And so, verses 6 through 12, Noah, he's, he's testing if the ground is dry. There's no point in going out if the water is still up to his neck, or if the ground is so sloshy, you couldn't build, you couldn't sleep on it, you couldn't do anything, it would just sink into the mire. So he's testing if the ground is dry. Well, how does he do it? Well, these days, if you're stuck in a box and you need to know what's going on in the world around you, what do we do? We send out drones. But Noah doesn't have drones. He doesn't have a remote-controlled Mars rover. Instead, Noah sends out these birds. And, and it's in four different sorties that he sends them out. First, he sends out this raven. Now, ravens are, are considered far-seeing birds. Great eyesight. They can, they can see things far away, further than we can see, and they can get higher up and see even further. Marie, mariners expect that if, if when they take ravens on a ship like, like this is in the older times they expect that a raven can be on a ship and if they release they're, they're far out at sea but if they release a raven and if the raven getting up in the air can see land the raven will head in the direction of land and that will tell the mariners where dry land is if it can see it it'll fly in that direction but this raven is just going back and forth, back and forth. it just doesn't see anything and it comes back And so this first, it's sort of an organic drone for Noah, sees no dry land nearby. Well, next, Noah sends a dove. And this is like a different style, a different range, a different array of sensors on this drone. A dove is a nesting creature who who will look for somewhere near to see what's going on around me. Maybe there's nothing far out, but maybe just here, because the ark is resting on a mountain. Uh, But the water near the ark is also too high, so... The dove returns. And Noah waits. He waits for a whole week. He's not like every, well, let's wait two more hours. Maybe something's changed. Or, or maybe tomorrow. He waits a whole week. And he sends the dove a second time. And this dove, again, same thing, exploring the area near the ark. And, and it, it's not till the evening time that the dove comes back. This time, when, when this second trip for the dove uh, ends, it has a little bit of information a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so this tells Noah that some of the land nearby, it's starting to appear, the water's gone down enough, and, and some trees, some of the branches are showing, but it's not enough for the, the dove to settle down, not enough for the dove to make a home outside of the ark. And so Noah, what does he do? He waits again. Not, he's like, he doesn't say, here's a leaf, wow, let's send out two or three more doves to see what else they bring. He just waits another week, another seven days. He sends a the dove then, after a week, for a third time. This dove doesn't return. It has found conditions to be dry enough to settle outside the ark. Now, this is an excellent example of how to wait on God. And Noah's good example will give us some some ways where we can go wrong in, in, in how we don't want to wait on God. So, first of all, waiting on God is not passive paralysis. Noah was waiting on God, and that means that he continued to look for signs of God's work. Noah took action to, to, to look for signs to try to get a read on what's God doing in the world. He, 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 he'd use these bird tests to see how is God working. Now, there, there's this thing, if you, if you read in Christian history, there's this period where there was, um, you could call it a movement or a, an approach called quietism, quietism. There was this movement in Christian history called quietism. You could call it hyper passivity hyper passivity and, and and the people that were kind of bound up in this they they said that waiting on god means you do nothing you you think that that submission to god means just an annihilation of your will an annihilation of of any of your desires and so i mean it, it could even fall into this this where it just, you could see the the error of it I'm being abused, I'm being oppressed, and you just say, "So be it no if, if, if you're being abused, oppressed, you need to speak out, you need to get out but but anguish that you have in your soul that's not something that needs to be eliminated. It was right, and it was good for God's people to cry out to God under the oppression. It was right for Noah to desire to be out of the box. Even Christ in the garden, he agonized, he sweat blood as he waited on God. The groanings of Christ were not sinful. He did it so it couldn't have been sinful. Groaning, under suffering, longing for it to end, that's not sinful. The groanings of the Spirit, Romans 8, as it's channeling our desires and our prayers, they're entirely righteous as the Spirit does it. So it's not something to be removed. Waiting on God is not this passive paralysis. It, it should, we should be noisy in our prayers. And, and it, it, waiting on God can, can prosecute the case for other people, prosecute the case of those who are in suffering, places like, like Psalm 13, where the, the believer who's waiting on God says, how long, God? How long, O God? God, see the wrong that these people are doing. Rise up, O God. How long will you be silent, O God? And so, so you speak up. You speak up about evil. You speak up about oppression. And as you wait on the Lord to rise up, you mourn with those who mourn. You give shelter to those in danger. And, and you use your God-given means. Maybe you don't have doves. Maybe you have drones. It's okay to use some of the means that you have, that God has given you, to test, to wait. And maybe within the realm where you are, in the box, in trapped in the ark, you, there are things you can do as you wait on the Lord. And so, waiting on God is not this passive paralysis. It's not do nothingism. Now, secondly, the the other error that Noah doesn't commit. He, he shows us um, waiting on God is not striving and rushing and agitating. Noah sends out a bird, but he sends out just a bird. He doesn't send out an exploration party. He doesn't rip open the roof and say, "Well, let's send." Well, who are my strongest sons? And maybe we could. Send them out on a horse or something like that. He doesn't even open the roof until verse 13. After the three doves bring back a positive reading, it's then that Noah gets on top of the ark, looks around, and finally sees with his own eyes. But Noah didn't do that immediately. He sent a raven and then a dove. And he was able to just wait seven days before taking the next reading before checking in. He wasn't all anxious, like texting, texting, everyone, like, what did, what did they say? What did they do? What have you heard? What are they doing at the office? Uh, they, made, they sent out this email. What's going to happen? Oh, what, what did the professor say? Oh, what's going on with my job application? He's able to wait. He, he did a test. He, he got a reading, and he waited seven days. And then he did it again. He could wait another seven days. It's almost like Noah is not in a hurry. Even though the time in the ark is dragging out for weeks, for months, for a whole year, Noah takes these actions as he waits on the Lord, but he doesn't take over action. This, his actions are not anxiety-fueled action. You know, that, that kind of thing, the kind of overaction action when, when you're freaking out and the whole house, the whole team, can tell that you're frantic and, and your franticness is making everyone else around you frantic and dialed up as well. Noah's trusting God. Noah can test the waters, he can patiently wait a week before he asks again, before he looks in again. He's patient. When you're not worried, you can test the waters, and if it's not time, you're content to wait. Wait another week. You're not churning with all these alternative plans. Well, well, if if it it was wet now, and next week if it's wet again, what am I going to do? What what, what are the alternative plans I need to have in place? He's not tossing and turning in the night with all the what-if scenarios. And that's how we want to be. God does not want you to be running around like the world is burning down, panicking. God wants you to trust him. God wants you to sleep in peace and just to give it to him. Jesus says in Matthew six twenty five, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. In verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, now you kids who are, who are hearing this, grown-ups get worried, grown-ups get anxious, but you kids can also be fearful. You can also be worried. Worried about how is school going to turn out? Worried about how are things going to turn out with my friends? Worried about your parents, whatever. God doesn't want you to worry God wants you to wait on him and to be safe in him. In this passage, God has been at work the whole time while Noah is waiting. While Noah waits, God is the one who sends the wind to lower the waters. While Noah is waiting, God is the one who stops the rain from the sky. You can't do that. Noah couldn't do that, but God did that. God is the one while Noah is waiting who stops up the fountains of the deep that were also flooding the earth. And while you wait, God is at work. When you are powerless and helpless, God is at work. When you have no windows to even look out and get a read on what's going on in the situation, when you've got nothing but this little single window in the roof, and all you can see is nothing around you that you need to know, all you can see is heaven and the skies, God is still at work. But waiting on God is hard. It's hard when, when we don't know. How much longer am I going to have to wait? How can you make plans? That's a, that's a control issue. If, if you feel like, I'm so stressed because I, 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 I can't make plans. Well, why is it so important to have a plan? Because I have to be in control. That, that's why. Why is it hard to wait on God? Why is it hard to trust him? Why is it hard to be patient? All those things. How can you wait on God? When his plans don't seem to be your plans. How how can you wait on God when his timing is coming in and it's not your timing? Well part of the answer of how you can wait on God is in verse one. It says there, then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. God remembered Noah. That remembrance it's when you look at the this Mirror symmetry of, of the rising of the flood and then the, the receding of the flood, that verse is at the center. It's in the middle. It's the pivot point of all of this. The remembrance of God is how you can wait. It's, it's how you can know that the destruction of the flood is coming to an end and that the diminishing of the flood will complete. How can you How can you wait on God when it's hard? You have got to be convinced that he remembers you. And this is something that we all need. We need to know that, that we're not forgotten. We need to know that God remembers me, that, that you matter to him. Isn't that what you've, you're spending your life seeking? Isn't that why you get so wrapped up about relationships, why you're so agitated if people don't reply to your messages? You need to know that you matter, that you matter to God. you're on his mind well how can you wait on God because no matter what you endure he remembers you believer in the gospel when Jesus endured his greatest suffering spiked to wood on his cross when he was enduring his greatest suffering instead of being self-consumed with his problems and with his pain you were on his mind He remembered you in his greatest pain. He was remembering you. The thief on the cross next to Jesus asked Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? I got enough problems of my own. How insensitive. This is all consuming. Jesus answered him and said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He's saying, I'll remember you. If Jesus remembers you in his greatest suffering, Jesus will not forget you in your great suffering. And the day finally does come for Noah. When they leave the ark, for good, every son, every wife emerges. They emerge safe and alive. Every creature, God brings all of them safely out. The time in the ark is done. God remembered them. Now, where does that lead? Where, what do they do? It leads to worship to coming together to God as his family and offering him, your deliverer, worship. It says in verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord. And so, worship what we do together. It's a place where you come when you're still stuck and you're waiting. Worship is the place where you you say, I'm waiting on you, Lord. I will wait on you. And worship is the place that you come together when he releases you when you've known freedom and salvation and deliverance from him, that's also what we do. We worship. Let me close with Psalm 27, verse 13 and 14. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, it makes us so uncomfortable to have to wait on you, and it makes us impatient, and we become frustrated when we have to wait longer than we think is reasonable. But Lord, we, we admit and we confess that we have no reason to doubt you, and we have every reason to know and to be certain and assured that you're at work while we're waiting, and that you will bring deliverance, you will bring light, the morning will dawn. We know that you raised Christ from the dead. Why did you wait three days? Well, at least we can learn that you may have us wait, but the life and the light will come. And and as we wait, Lord, we pray that we would have grace to wrestle with you and to look to you in faith and to, to cry out to you and to engage with you. And we pray, Lord, that you would also use us and send us to come and to encourage those who are waiting on you. May none of us wait alone. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.